Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. known fact about my guest today, his best friend, Patti Lapone was living with him in L.A. when she got the call that she was auditioning for a musical called Evita. She prepared for that audition in his house, and well, that story and so much more with my guest today, Emmy Award-winning writer Jeffrey Richman. Welcome, Jeffrey, to the podcast. A-OK. Hey everyone, my guest today is the Emmy, WGA, PGA, and Golden Globe award-winning writer and producer, Jeffrey Richman. Jeffrey is the co-creator and executive producer of the Netflix series, Uncoupled. Prior to that, he was an EP of Modern Family for 10 seasons. He has served as an executive producer on Wings, Frasier, Stark Raving Mad, Charlie Lawrence, Jake in Progress, Stacked, Rules of Engagement, Desperate Housewives, and Back to You. He also received an Emmy nomination for writing the 82nd Annual Academy Awards, and he is married to the glorious actor and my friend, John Benjamin Hickey. Um, Hi, Jeffrey. Hi, Alana. Welcome to the podcast. Thank Um, you for having me. I have been uh, binging Uncoupled, and... It is so thrilling to get to talk to one of the geniuses behind the show that is giving so much pleasure to so many people right now. Um, and that comes on the heels of Modern Family, which which when I had Ty Burrell on the show, he was saying the thing is, aside from the fun of being on that show, was the joy of meeting person after person um, for whom it meant so much to watch that show in their living room with the people that they loved. And you are the man behind so many of the scenes and um, memorable pieces of dialogue and plot lines that have brought joy for decades now to so many people. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just true. Aside from being the nicest human, you're you're the funniest and smartest. So I would like to go back in time if, okay, if that's okay with you um, uh, and just have you talk about growing up and who is in your house and where do you think your unique singular comedic voice uh, came from? Um, There wasn't really, my parents weren't funny. I think basically I had an aunt um, who, who was funny, who, who was, a identifiably funny person to me and um, her way of looking at the world and it, it made me laugh. Um, 
I think growing up a, a gay kid, you know, it wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't tormented, but certainly I was bullied a little bit. And I think humor was a way to deflect that. So I, I discovered that I kind of had that bone and I, uh, I used it. I didn't really know, I, I had no awareness at all that you could turn that into a living. Um, <clears throat> and then my first real experience of, of entertainment as something that just made me laugh was the movie of Barefoot in the Park. And I, I, I just couldn't believe how funny it was. And it was the kind of that Neil Simon dialogue and situation was sort of in, once it was introduced, that was ultimately the kind of writing that I aspired certainly to do. And, and he was obviously a genius. Um, but that was, that was sort of my introduction to, to, the, to the writing. You know, I could hear writing huh. in, that, in that film. Right. And even though the actors were fantastic, I knew somewhere, and I was probably 12 or 13, that that, that was writing that was making them funny. Hmm. And uh, and then you know things happened. I I fell into it, <clears throat> into into my career. It was nothing I ever aspired to. I wanted to be an actor, um, and I did a few. You know, I worked a, in in TV, and there was a, a I was in an improvisation class in the early 80s and late 70s that was run by a guy named Harvey Lembeck in LA. And at that moment, it had some just about to be famous people in it. Robin Williams got um, Morgan Mindy while we were in that class. John Ritter was on Three's Company. Penny Marshall was in it. So it, it this, this improv class, this was before even groundlings or uh, or improv became a you know uh, citizens upright citizens brigade way before any of that. Um, he was given a Showtime special, and it was before Showtime was a signatory of the Writers Guild. And he asked me and another woman in the class if we would write it. I'd never written anything. Um, Wait, Robin Williams asked you in this other- No, Harvey Lembeck. The teacher. The teacher, the instructor. Okay, okay. Asked me and a woman if we would write this show, this Showtime special about this improv class. Okay. And they couldn't hire union writers. That's how- That's how long ago this was for Showtime. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And I remember- 
Um, I made $1,500, which allowed me to quit my horrible waiter job at Dharmagreb. Do you know, did you ever go to Dharmagreb? No. It was a Moroccan restaurant in um, Hollywood. Okay. That was kind of, you know, fancy. You would go for your birthday. It was like a Disneyland of restaurants. Did you grow up in LA? I did. Okay. In the Valley. Okay. And I, we wrote this thing. And from that, the executive producers, God, this is so far back, of that Showtime special, were executive producing the Marie Osmond variety show that fall. <laughs> this was after Donnie and Marie. Right. Their own show. Yeah. So they hired us, me and this woman, Joyce Skitlin, um, to be writers. And that's how I got into the WGA. So and now you're I, writing a variety show. Correct. And I'd never written that before. So I learned how to do that, at, at, you know, on the job, basically. <clears throat> and then friends of mine, David Lee and Peter Casey, were um, story editors on The Jeffersons. God, if people hear this, I'll never work again. Um, I'm so old. <laughs> no, it's okay. They don't know what The Jeffersons is. It's not a problem. Oh, it's true. So they had us in to pitch stories and we sold, you know, we sold an episode. And that's how I learned to write a half hour is I got hired to write it. And there came a time in the mid eighties, I was on as an actor, a series called Paper Dolls, which ran for one season. That was a, one of the nighttime soaps. Right. As a makeup artist, everything I did was gay. So it, it was a moment, and I also, was offered my first staff job on a sitcom. And it was truly a fork in the road that I was like, you're not, the acting thing is this is, these are the parts you're gonna get. Mm -hmm. You're not great, you might work, you might even get a sitcom, but right. you're never gonna be the lead. You're never gonna, and you're always gonna be, um, not working when you could go to work every day. Because as a writer, you can, if you, if you want to, you couldn't go to work every single day. And so I took the staff job, the uh, television show that I was acting on was canceled and I sort of never looked back. I did a couple of little things, but only when people would ask me to, to do right, it. Right, right. So if you're sort of looking back um, and, and then suddenly like, you know, there's a master class and you are, you are in, our instructor uh, that we, if you go back to those early days of sort of crafting this career as a staff writer, um, having, it doesn't sound like you went to school for it. It doesn't sound like you took I a lot. I never even wrote a spec script. Right. So um, a lot of people listening are going to just hate you yeah. um, because it sounds so easy. Um, in terms of how you broke in, obviously the job itself is not easy in terms of, um, I don't know, how hard one has to work. Uh, but, but what are the things that like early on, 
you know, you you sort of understood comedy. You had a natural voice. It sounds like you could hear even at a young age, like, oh, that's good writing. Um, well, also the improv class, getting okay, it up. Let's and, go back um, to that. For sure, and and being with those insanely talented young people yeah. sharing the stage, you know, being given premises and having to make that room laugh and be successful on your feet uh, was the greatest tool I could have had coming into. Because if you're on the staff of a television show, a comedy show, yeah, your, your job is to pitch constantly, constantly. Right. So you're in a room and really your whole job is to make the people in that room laugh. You, you have to come up with stories. You have to come up with, there's right. a lot to be able to actually write, but the, the prime goal is to make people laugh. It's the greatest job in the world. If there's- What happens when you, I mean, were you just always fantastically observant? Because I know on Modern Family, I mean, that was a chance. I mean, the longevity of that show, it, that's a rare thing. So obviously at a certain point, you all knew the characters inside and out and then were remarkable at bringing in guest stars each week to kind of fill out stories with people who were just also miraculously funny. Um, but were you just constantly... Were you able to just be in life without constantly going, oh wait, I need to remember this because this can be an episode. Were you able to just be present without wondering, is this going into the show? Um, that show above anything that I ever worked on was, was um, very much about the writers digging, plumbing their own lives for stories, especially because it was, it just ran forever. Right. But when it started, there were a couple of elements in that, in that, um, in that show that were interesting. I was not on the first season. I had done several shows with both Steve Levitan and Chris Lloyd together and separately. Right. And I was already on a TV show, Rules of Engagement, when they did that remarkable pilot and I was not available, they asked me, but I was not available to do the first season. And I remember, and I thought too, you know, the last show I did with them was Back to You with Kelsey and Patty Heaton and Ty. Yeah. And you could already see the, uh, their relationship starting to fray. In fact, they had an obligation to the studio to do one more pilot, which became Modern Family, but already it was not great. Right. So in my head, and Rules of Engagement was the greatest job ever. Mm -hmm. it, it, it wasn't a great show, but it was such a friendly, the hours were fantastic. We thought it was funny. You know, it, it wasn't even, my contribution to it was strictly craft because I wasn't really bringing stories of my life into it. 
And I thought, I'll just sit back and wait and see what their new show is. Of course, it's a hit out of the box, like a mammoth hit. I watch it every week as a fan. I I, I, I can't even believe I know. how good it is. Yeah. It's just, and so. Every character, every scenario. Oh, no, it, was, it was like, I, I, did, I couldn't even believe what I was watching. And then separately, I was like, okay, well, I'm done with rules of engagement. Yeah. And, and they, in fact, could, they, that whole first season, there was not one gay writer. They could not, I wasn't available. Nobody was available. And then, you know, it was, it took just this much longer than I thought it would take for them to say, of course, come on. They had to actually shuffle people. Mm. They had to, they had to make room. Mm -hmm. And that meant letting go of people or moving people around. Yeah. But it was a moment where I thought, oh my God, this is this maybe not gonna happen? And then of course it did. And yeah, me, for years and years and years. And you're like, can I get off? And then the ride was Can just I get off the ride? Yeah. Fantastic. But in another way, Modern Family was um, was a very different experience because there were, it, it was the first time I was writing for out gay, they were the first out gay parents on television. And it when we would have the hiatus every, and I would be out in the world because it's a very insular existence writing on a television show. You, you're not really um, interacting a lot. It's, it's very that. I would be, I would have a couple of months in New York with John in LA or traveling and the reaction that people had, gay people, their parents, how, how it brought these families together. I came out because of your show. My son came out because of your show. People literally, I mean, when I was on Frasier, people were very impressed and, oh my God, it's my favorite show, but they were, they were made up things. This was touching people in a way that that certainly hadn't been my experience in television and was so personal. And in 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 other countries, in England and Israel, the the amount of emotion that it elicited from people who were truly whose lives were, I mean, there were 12-year-old, and I thought the same thing. If I was 12 and I, I started watching Modern Family. I would think, oh, when I grow up, I'm gonna get married and have a family and be part of a family, a bigger family. And they're all gonna treat me like the straight family and the older guy with the younger wife and me and my husband. And that certainly was not my reality at 12. When, when you think about, so for, for people who aren't, you know, in the, in the world of writing for, for sitcoms, um, 
are you specifically uh, writing just for camp for that couple? No, no. Does everyone write everybody? <clears throat> everybody writes everybody, of course. Okay. But you, specifically, my life, um, it, it, my relationship, I could bring, I could deepen those characters and I could deepen the Ed O'Neill character because of the age and mm -hmm. I could deepen the Thai character, all of them. Yeah, 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 really. yeah. But I could, I could really bring myself and Abraham Higginbotham, who's the other gay writer. Mm -hmm. um, we brought a lot to those characters that for the first four or five years, we really dug in and exposed parts of our relationship that, I mean, I think there were moments where I would sit at the table going, should I say this? Should I reveal this? And then go, fuck it, we need a story. And this so is- So are there, are there scenes in Modern Family that are directly from John Benjamin Hickey and Jeffrey Richmond's oh, life, like verbatim? A hundred percent. Is there one that you can think of or would you rather not? Well, there, I mean, there's so, there's so many also from Abraham and his husband, Stephen. Yeah. Um, there's one where I would tease John that every time, every time he would be in the company of, you know, straight people or whatever, there'd suddenly be this shit, hey dude, how are you? Hi man, what are you doing? And I would be like, well, are, are, are we gay again? And the guy leaves, that's in there. Right. Uh, we had a, an argument once about, we, in our apartment in New York, we decided there would be no theatrical or TV. There would, I had Emmys and he was like, the Emmys will stay in LA. This is going to be a, a career free zone. Then he won a Tony and that fucking Tony went straight up. Right, might as well have had spotlight on it. So I brought an Emmy, which is, three times the size of a Tony to sit right next to it in New York. Mitch and Cam had a big fight about, um, about the size of one of their awards as opposed to the other one. Same thing. Right. And so they can have it. One more, yeah. I love the idea that John suddenly, John Wayne in the company yeah. of- Oh my God, oh my God, still. <laughs> That's why he's such a good actor. Um, you're also uh, really dear friends because I love her so much too and feel lucky that she's in my life with Patty Lapone. Yes, um, I heard her on your show. Yes, so so I know having Patty on, I, I can literally ask anyone on the planet now because once Patty comes on, it's the best stamp of approval anyone <laughs> could ever dream of. Um, and every time she emails me, I just screenshot hi doll and I just use it as um as my uh, my screensaver. Um, so how do you and Heidal know each other? How did that come together? She's truly been my best friend for 47 years, 40, the summer of 1977. Yeah. She came out to visit her brother, Bobby. Bobby. Um, 
in, who was in LA doing a chorus line. And she came out to visit him and Bobby and I were friends. And there, he had a birthday party, I think. And we just met and I'm serious. It's never happened to me like that before, but we just, from, we just became inseparable. She was here for that summer. Um, and we never weren't as close as we are today. And we, it's interesting when you, when you grow up with someone just in terms of, we were in our twenties. I, she was living with me when she got Evita. She was doing like a tiny part in the Steven Spielberg movie, 1941, staying with me so she could save the, the per diem, whatever that they right. give you. Right. I was working at Dharmagreb and this, I'm gonna make this quick. She, um, Evita had already been a production in London. Right. And they were casting the American company and she was practicing there, there had been a concept album and she was practicing her three songs that she was going to sing Buenos Aires, Argentina, whatever they were. And she was practicing in my house. And I was like, she was going to fly to New York the next day and audition for Hal Prince. And I was like, Oh my God, are you nervous? And she, in a, in a, the most matter of fact, not arrogant, no guile. She just said, no, this is the next thing I'm supposed to do. Wow. And then got it. Anyway, I watched my friend go from, she wasn't struggling, but she wasn't. And back when Broadway could make a star. Yeah. That doesn't really happen that much anymore. But yeah. then that part made her, oh, not overnight, but made her a star. And I was her date for the Tony Awards that year, her date for opening night. Um, and it changed the way I viewed success. It, it suddenly became accessible. Like, oh, that just, that happened for her. Someone so close to me, I was like, okay, this, you know, this is real. It's this is not for other right. people. Exactly. Right. It's even in your orbit. Exactly. It, it, even in a way that the budding stars of the improv didn't register. This thing with Patty was so close. Yeah. We've been friends for five years, four or five years, four years maybe when that happened. And it, it a light switch turned on. And when, I, the next year was when I, um, I, I almost was like, well, you can't be a waiter and be her date at the time. Right. 
you can't do that. Right. So I, I got that writing job that year. You feel like you manifested that? Like I, I want to keep up with my friend? And I will tell you something else. I completely manifested Uncoupled. And I have actually, I manifested Modern Family. It's a thing I really believe. Not that I haven't been disappointed. Not that I haven't always gotten everything I've wanted. But yeah, I... Is there, so can you, I mean, what when you say that, um, is that by believing in yourself? Um, no, it's when she said, this is the next thing that's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. It, I was like, okay, what is the next thing that is supposed to happen? Not that I deserve or that I'm so talented or that I, because I didn't know how to do any of those things. I didn't right. know how to write sketches, didn't know how to write an episode of comedy. I certainly never didn't know how to write a pilot. I, 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 I these opportunities presented themselves and what I was, was awake. And looking back, kind of fearless. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I, and I will say, I will say to people that are listening going, boy, he's lucky. I was a hundred percent lucky. But I knew early on that relationships in this business were everything. Mm-hmm. Relationships with your colleagues, relationships with your representation. These were not to be taken, like these were to be nourished and not in a fake way, uh-huh. but you had to find the people that you wanted to spend all those hours with. And then you had to come through. Mm -hmm. So that's basically what happened when Modern Family was over, which was two weeks before the pandemic in 2020, even the last year of it, it was like the next thing I want to do is eight episodes with a partner on Netflix. I did not know what the show would be. I didn't know who the partner would be. I knew I didn't want to do it alone. I knew I wanted it to be on Netflix. And I knew I only wanted to do eight episodes. Et voila. Yes, and I had an agent that made that happen. Okay, so tell tell us the, the, so that's the, the vision for yourself of what you wanted the next thing to be. Right. And, and then, then what happens? And then it was the pandemic and we were out here in Long Island and a couple of friends of mine were getting stuff on pilots made or uh, yeah, there was a spinoff of Modern Family, The Boys. That was a, in a pilot stage. There was a show with Kelsey Grammer and Alec Baldwin that sort of went straight to series, famously collapsed. But anyway, I was kind of waiting around going, oh, 
you know, will I be asked to do one of those? Will, is that going to be the next thing? Mm -hmm. And I realized, number one, the, the spinoff thing went away. I wasn't asked to do the Kelsey and Alec thing, but it imploded that, that show. Um, and I was talking to several good friends who were like, that's not the thing you were supposed to do. Mm -hmm. I was only, you know, it had been five or six months of pandemic. I, I kind of wanted to go back to work. So it was going back to work with friends, mm -hmm. but it wasn't the thing I had expressed, had dreamt that I wanted to do. And then my agent, Jay Sears, his other client, not his only other client, Darren Starr was, is his client too. We had known each other socially through Jay. Mm -hmm. And Jay said, um, you guys do something together. And we came up with this concept about a long-term gay relationship that... Um, and is that because you had both been thinking about that or are you spitballing over lunch? Like, how does that- We were, yeah, only out here. We had maybe four or five meetings. We wanted to do a romantic comedy with a gay lead. That okay. that's, was the sort of headline. Right. And then it was like, well, how do you, why is it? And we wanted to certainly do it about somebody that was not super young. Mm-hmm. And then how do you, why is a guy single in his late forties? What, mm -hmm. oh, well, he's just been broken up with. Wait a minute. I know several gay couples in long-term relationships, not one, not two, several. Uh -huh. Where one of the partners secretly plotted to leave the relationship and only told the other partner when it was a done thing. So we didn't want a, and then Darren went, oh my God, I know three couples like that oh too. Oh my God. It was so crazy. Yeah. We didn't want to By tell. Way, how awful. So awful. So awful. So it, there you had it. It's awful, but we try, and we didn't want to tell two stories. We only mm -hmm. wanted to follow one person. Right. Um, so you decided the, right, for the yeah. comedy of it, we're gonna focus on the one who's been left, not the one who's- Correct. Right, like there's some way to make that our romantic lead in the world of- Someone that's just been, someone that's, takes someone from their lowest point. It's one thing to have a protracted breakup, a divorce, I'm unhappy, well, I'm unhappy. Well, mm -hmm. why are you unhappy? It's another to be told, I've taken my clothes and some things and I have an apartment and I don't want to talk about it. 17. Okay, and the idea, and just by the way, and I, I guess I don't, it can't be a spoiler because the show's been on and so I'm not sure if I can say it, but the idea that in this in this show, uh, the, the boyfriend tells Neil Patrick Harris um, moments before they are walking into a very public event 
I will say. Um, so it isn't spoiled for the, the people who haven't watched it yet. Just how did you guys figure that out? Well, I think that's been written about in every review. So okay, I, so I don't. So, so we so can we talk knew, about it. Okay, let's make fifty the the freak out point yep. for the other guy. Yep. Um. And we knew that that moment was going to be really spectacular if we could pull it off. Yep. And. For a while in the beginning, the surprise party was at the very end of the episode, okay. but then we didn't know how, what are, so what are we watching until that happens? Right. We also knew we couldn't start with it because you had to be invested a little bit. Right, in, in this couple. In the couple and yeah. see how clueless Neil's character was <laughs> without revealing that the other guy, and the other guy was going to tell him at a dinner that he thought they were having. And instead, Neil, against this guy's wishes, throws this elaborate, and it also gave us a set piece where Neil's character, in, in the most extraordinary uh, moment of his relationship, has to get through this party. Right. Knowing, and, and, and can't talk to anybody. His, well, it's certainly his partner. Yeah. So you have wearing wings, angel wings. During angel. The event. Like you can't even, it's ridiculous. Um, I want to know how one after creating, I mean, obviously when you're, when you're, you know, Jeffrey Richman and Darren Starr and have the um, body of work behind both of you, uh, if you are a, a well-known actor, you're going to feel pretty confident that you're in great hands. But but you have a very specific thing. You want someone who can play this role, and it seems to me you would like him to be gay, if if that's possible in the yeah. role. Um, I don't know if that was something that you set out as you know absolutely the only way we're doing this is if the lead character is gay or if you just wanted the best actor. You ended up with both, as it turns out. I don't think as two gay creators with a gay lead, I I don't think, and I'm live with an actor that plays both gay and straight. Mm -hmm. And in a, he's got a remarkable career that way. Yeah. I don't think I would have been comfortable as a creator. And I don't think the show would have been as authentic. If the, we, we determined that the leading, the leading man had to be an out gay actor. After that, it was pretty much the best actor for the part. But right. And I had worked with Neil. Were you, know, you writing with him in mind when you created this show? I don't know. Okay. No, there were it 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 would mutate because there was a roster of gay actors that we had both worked with that um, you know, so we didn't have an actor. We wanted okay. we did the character. Okay. And um when it was finished, then it was Neil. And when it was finished, do you mean, did you guys write uh, 
all eight? Did you just write the first one? Sort of where are you when you- uh, Again, the great printing. Um, we wrote the first episode. Okay. We didn't know what it was going to be. <clears throat> um, and it was supposed to go out, I remember, on a Friday to all of the Apple, Showtime, HBO, whatever, Peacock. It, it was supposed to go everywhere at once. All right. The weekend. And Jay, our agent, who was just flipped out over it. I remember Darren and I looking at each other going, I mean, it's good, but it's really? He got it to um, Netflix. Didn't tell us, slipped it to them on Wednesday. On Thursday morning, he called us and said, it's a series at Netflix. So before the weekend, before it went out any place. No one else ever saw it. Yeah, which is what you wanted. It was a series at Netflix and that's what you manifested. Uh-huh. It was your Evita. Um, so, so- It was the now, next thing that was supposed to happen. It was supposed to happen. Um, and so how do you, do you have a meeting with Neil? Like, do you got, like what happens then when you go down your list or, or you find the person? I don't know. No, we did not. Um, like I said, I had worked with him on a series, Stark Raving Mad, right. when he was 26, and he was already so impossibly skilled. And, you know, he's just, he's just everything. He clicks yeah. every box, checks every box. Yeah. Um, no, we sent it to his agent with a note. Um, and he read it. And they, he was, you know, he wanted to do it. And then they made a deal and then we had a conversation. And then you talked about sort of what the over, I mean, at that point you have one episode, I'm sure you and Darren had talked about what the arc of the series would be. Zero. Not one bit. Okay, so then you just wait for the other writers to come on? Like then what? I mean, we knew that it ended on a cliffhanger that first episode. As does the series, by the way. Yes. Most of the episodes actually do. Yeah. Um, We knew that we had painted ourselves into a corner, which we loved doing. Um, But all we had was that one episode. Then we hired a writing staff and we started to talk about what that, what part two of that cliffhanger Mm-hmm. would look like and we certainly didn't want it to be an obvious thing i mean again it's a little bit of a spoiler but no i won't say it okay don't say it don't say it that'll be bonus content yes, that'll be bonus we'll sell it for charity um we didn't know we didn't know casting mm-hmm. um except for neil once we had neil um, Did you hold auditions for your cast or were they all offers in the end? Well, certainly Marsha was an offer. Mm-hmm. It was a phone call. Mm-hmm. Tisha was a phone, was a meeting, phone call. 
we knew within 30 seconds of talking to her that she was the woman. She never read. She came through in such a huge, wonderful, fresh, like she and Neil had remarkable chemistry from the beginning. Brooks and Emerson read for their roles and both of them nailed them, Tuck read. Um, and then all of the, all of the other parts that filled in were all auditions. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and so you're filming on location in New York City? Yeah. So what is that like? I mean, talk about manifesting, like I wanna do a show, I want it to be at Netflix. You get to live and sleep in your own apartment at night. Um, what are the joys and the uh, terrors of trying to film a series with Neil Patrick Harris, who's an unbelievably popular actor on the streets of New York? I mean, it really is. If you look at Sarah Jessica sort of running around New York, just, you know, the year prior, and now people have Neil. Um, there are so many ways this project could have gone south that beginning with the COVID Aaron and I, oh. <clears throat> um, who, by the way, is a dream partner and collaborator and friend. I love, I love it. You say it could have gone wrong. I say COVID and you're like, no, me and Darren. <laughs> well, from the beginning, me and Darren, but COVID, the cast, not like each other. You know, I've been on shows where it's, it's not ideal. Great. Yeah. Everything about it. Neil managed to get COVID only over the Christmas break. So there was no, we never had to push, I think, wow. three days. Wow. Um, you know, whole productions were shutting down all over New York. So you guys never did? No, we pushed our Christmas vacation three days. Okay. Because he was, you had to have 10 days or something. But right. the bulk of his, uh, Illness, COVID was over the vacation. Um, I basically moved to New York during, it, it, you know, we moved because I got this job. Yeah. I didn't know that I was going to be a permanent New York resident until this job happened. And so, yes, there was nothing. It was, it was just wonderful even waking up at five o'clock you've done this you know when you think it's a pain in the ass and it was all good going to work in the dark was good coming home in the dark was good writing those scripts were fantastic um telling those stories going from comedy to emotion in a way that i hadn't in really any show that i'd done before all of it was. Um... Yeah, he's really, I mean, it's really incredible because the show is so funny, but Neil really roots it in, um, you really believe him. It's really painful. It's yeah. really painful. And it's, it's incredibly joyous when you see him find his footing again. He's, um, he's an, First of all, he's a remarkable actor and collaborator. He asks really tough, challenging questions. Nothing 
you can't be glib in the writing with him or, or say, just say it, you know. It, it, it'll yeah, yeah he really, he's invested. And then when you give him a good answer, he goes, got it, okay, good. Okay. Um, but there's also, he brings an authenticity to the part which brings me back to, I don't, I'm, I'm an advocate for casting the best actor in the best part, but it has not been a level playing field up until now. So there's a kind of a lot of catching up for gay actors in gay parts that have traditionally been played by brave straight actors. I did a pilot 20 years ago called Say Uncle, which was about a single gay um, guy on TV, like on Hollywood Tonight or Entertainment Tonight, one of those guys, inherits his niece and nephew. It's kind of bachelor father. We could not find an actor who would take that role, including my good friend, John Slattery. <laughs> right. Finally, that, that Les Moonves, who was running that network at that time, would, would um, there were no openly gay actors. You know, so even, even actors that presumably were gay were not out. Right. Um, eventually, Ken Olin, my dreamy Ken Olin, played the part and it wasn't a perfect fit, but ever since I am so in love with him for, for but that's what it was then. Right. Brave actors. And right. now, now it's, it's gonna take a while for the pendulum to swing back to where everybody gets to play everything. Now it's time you cast a, a, a gay actor in a gay lead. And, and you get in return an authenticity, not to denigrate any performance that has come before. Of but course. It's different. And it's different as a gay creator that you want that. You want that. Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah. Uh, you know, I keep thinking about, um, well, 12 year old you, right? And what was available, you know. I mean, Barefoot in the Park, I mean, it does give you Robert Redford and Jane Fonda and, you know, I mean, it's, it is really dreamy in that way in that writing, but sort of how few things there were to, um, to see yourself in or to see yourself reflected back at you in. And so the idea that between Modern Family and the pilot you're describing with Ken, even though it didn't end up being, you know, out in the world and this show, it's, um, it's remarkable, the, the, changing of of what is considered you know something normal to see on tv the, well, the, first, the normalization of these relationships the first thing that i did get on tv was another gay character right after the producers nathan lane there was a sweepstakes they used to do this in television where there would be a star that was very hot and they would have three different writers create something. They really called it the sweepstakes. Hmm. And the actor, together with the studio that 
had him under contract or the network would choose which of those. And now the WGA put a stop to it, but this was 20 years ago. And he was coming right off of the producers, could not have been hotter, wanted to do a series. I knew him a little bit. Um, and I came up with a show where he was a former TV star, but a cheesy one that now was a first term congressman from New Mexico. It was called Charlie Lawrence. Laurie Metcalf was in it. Stephanie Pharisee, uh, 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 T.R. Knight. Anyway, I won the Nathan Lane sweepstakes. So it was another gay character played at that time, unbelievably by an, a gay actor. I forget if Nathan was out, I'm sure he was. And I don't imagine any time that he wasn't. But anyway, I knew he was gay. The character was gay. The show lasted seven episodes and it was really funny. Right. You know, speaking of funny, I, I can't stop thinking about the fact that you were in an improv group in your in your young life. I mean, Penny Marshall, John Ritter and Robin Williams. I mean, I and, and others who must have been there. And I wonder if you can share before I let you go any memories of Robin that sort of really stick with you all these years later. I, I actually have two memories of him. Um, One was an, an improv where maybe there were five of us and we all had to make an entrance. That was the task. Just find a funny way to make an entrance. And he, he gave birth to himself. That was his entrance. And the second memory I have, we were at a party And the class, the instructor, everyone was just blown away. It was like, what the fuck? How do you come up with that? And we were at a party, I remember, and I think he had, he had, he had just gotten his TV show, but it, I was complimenting him on something saying, you know, you're, it's gonna be so wonderful and, so happy for you. And he just put his arm on my shoulder and said, we all have our gifts. It'll be your turn. Sweet. It was just the sweetest. So sweet. All right, before I let you go, is there a little known fact about you that you can share? I will tell you it, um, something you said just before about um, about Barefoot in the Park and me being a kid and what did I see and how was it reflected? Yeah. And the first thing I saw that made me think, um, oh, that's me or that's who I wanna be was the boys in the band. And even though, you know, it has a second act that sort of devolves into a lot of self-loathing and the horrifying Virginia Woolf type, I was only, in the first act, I was like, I want to be in that apartment. I want those friends. I want to go to Fire Island. Where is that? Um, I think I was 16 when that movie came out and I saw it. And I just was like, 
I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be, I'm not going to be the self-loathing kind. I'm going to be the happy kind. Unbelievable. And look at your life. I mean, the life that you've built, the art, the love, the friendship, the generosity, the kindness. That's so sweet. Um, the you husband. are remarkable. Thank you for the countless hours of oh entertainment and for your friendship in, in real life as well. Oh, so right back at you. I'm dear. so happy. Thank you for being on the podcast. Love today. you. I love you. One more thing. I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts social media intern is Sophia Rosenbaum. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.